All right, Luke chapter 2 tonight. You know what? It's not going We're having some technical difficulties tonight. All right. Uh, first of all, we are having outlines for our study. And I put some on every table, but if you have extra and there's folks that don't have, if you don't have an outline, why don't you raise your hand? Okay, everyone has an outline. All right, no, we've got several people. We need to get outlines to them. If you've got extra on your table that's not being used, I would greatly appreciate sharing those outlines with everyone. It's going to make it a lot easier to go through the amount of material. And like I said, though, Sunday... Last week certainly is going to be the most ground that we cover in one week because Luke chapter 1 is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Tonight we come to Luke chapter 2. And again, we're just getting started in a great study of the Gospel of Luke. By the way, before I forget it, and I will certainly mention this again on Sunday and for a couple weeks, but while I think about it, Many of us have extra Bibles or Bibles just laying around that we're not using anymore. Uh, Mark, who heads up our park ministry to the homeless, uh, would love it if you could bring in some Bibles that you're no longer using so when they go out next month in October, they could take some Bibles with them to some of these folks. So if you would like to you know, donate those Bibles, bring them even Sunday. We'll make sure that Mark gets them. If you want to talk to Mark about being part of the park ministry, it's this handsome guy right here in the green shirt sitting right here. All right. And uh, so anyway, if you have some Bibles, I know that uh, those folks would greatly appreciate being able to take them out and give them to these folks that they, uh, that they meet with on a monthly basis. Luke chapter 2. Obviously, the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2 are pretty familiar to us. But there were a couple things that stood out to me as I studied this passage. Obviously, the first seven verses talk about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But I want us again to be reminded tonight of how God works behind the scenes. Remember that this compilation, if you will by Luke was just intended for one man, Theophilus. And it was intended to confirm him in what he already believed, to give him even more stability and more assurance that what he believed about Jesus and all that he's heard about Jesus really was the truth and that the life of Jesus Christ was grounded in historical fact. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Luke begins chapter 2 the way he does. He wants to make sure that Theophilus, and obviously now for centuries later, that all of us realize that Jesus and his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection all took place within real history. So that's why he opens up chapter 2 with, in in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the Roman Empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. By the way, just a side note here. 
When things like this happen, it was, a, it was sort of like a sword in the heart of the people of Israel. Because this reminded them that just like back in the Old Testament when they were under Pharaoh and under Egypt, now here in the New Testament, they are under the Roman Empire. They are under Caesar. And that they're not experiencing, you know, the freedom, if you will, of, as God's people as they should. And it goes back to their own disobedience in the Old Testament. But I want us to note as we read this, that though God is choosing through Luke to mention a lot of the political leaders of the world at that time, that they didn't realize that God was using them to accomplish His plan and purpose, but He was always working behind the scenes to make sure that the prophecy given in Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, was accomplished. And He used these powerful political leaders to make sure that it happened. The encouraging thing, I think, for you and I is this. We must always remember, even in our lives, God is always working behind the scenes. Many times as God's people, we get discouraged because we look at a situation or a person or something like that, and we may even go to God and say, God, why aren't you doing anything? Why isn't anything, you know, and, and what we have to realize is sometimes God is working, but maybe we can't see it. God, remember, works at the heart level. God can work from His mind and heart to someone else's that we never see. So we don't know necessarily unless that person or that situation is revealed a little bit more to us what is going on underneath the surface. So even now, you may be uh, experiencing maybe a little discouragement from thinking that, man, it doesn't seem like God's working on my behalf or doing anything about this situation. But remember, God is always working behind the scenes in ways that we never know. And again, just like in this case, these political powerful leaders in Luke's day did not realize that they were actually being instruments of God. Hopefully, as God's people, we at least have enough spiritual awareness that we know when God is using us or when God is using others and that we're aware of that. And we'll talk more about that as we go through. So don't be discouraged. God is always at work and he does a lot of his work, if not most of his work, behind the scenes until he's ready to actually reveal it. And that was true even with the birth of Jesus. But we also notice here, being God's servant is not always comfortable or convenient. Being God's servant is not always comfortable or convenient. When, when Joseph and Mary basically said, hey, we're, we're willing to be your servants, God. If this is your will for our lives, and even as Mary said last week, then let it happen to me, God, according to your word. But let's remember what that entailed. Because that entailed her being great with child, making a 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably three days, while she was great with child. And obviously, while she was there, she was going to have the child away from home, away from family, and she was going to have the child in a stable. 
So, I think the reminder there is that we have to make sure that when we say, God, I want to be your servant, are we truly willing to be God's servant, even if that means sometimes we're going to be in uncomfortable situations? That personally, it may not be comfortable for us. But we're asking God to use us to make an impact for Him in this world. And so sometimes God's going to say, your comfort is not the highest priority. Same thing with convenience. It would have been much more convenient if this would have all worked out for Mary and Joseph to have had Jesus in their hometown. Not have to travel 90 miles. And so when we try to serve God... And make sure that it's always at our convenience. There's going to eventually be a rub there between us saying we want to serve God, but always wanting to do it at our convenience. And we certainly see that because we read verse four. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem. By the way, the city of Bethlehem means house of bread which is sort of significant since Jesus later in the gospel says, I am the bread of life and the bread of life was born in the house of bread because he was of the house and family line of David. Again, all things happening to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He went to be registered with Mary who was promised in marriage to him and who was expecting a child. Literally in the Greek, big with child. Big with child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in the strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so notice there in the outline, I wanted to end this section with these thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. If we would have planned for the, for the Messiah, for God to come into the world, I have to believe it would have been certainly different than this. I mean, first of all, you think about even the family that he was born into. He was not born into a wealthy power broker family. <laughs> he was born to Joseph and Mary, who literally had to you know, wrap him up and then place him in a feeding trough in a stable because obviously Bethlehem swelled with people coming to be registered and there just wasn't any more room for them anywhere. It's not the way you and I would have designed it. By the way, something interesting, the Jews wrapped their children in these strips of cloth the same way they wrapped they're dead. In fact, if you remember when Jesus died, they wrapped him in strips of cloth. And the reason they did that was it was always a reminder that everyone born into this world was destined to die. That there was a connection between birth and death. And then she lays him in the feeding trough, a place where the animals would eat out of. Which again is sort of significant in the fact that if he is the bread of life, 
placing him in a feeding trough, it, it makes sense, but there's such humility in that. He's the Son of God. There's even such simplicity in this, isn't there? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't go into all these other details. It's just simply, she had her son, she wrapped him in these cloths, she placed him in the feeding trough, and that was it. There was no embellishment. There was no trying to make it more than what it was. It was simple, it was powerful, but boy, was it humble. And that's why I say God's ways are not our ways. Think about the juxtaposition between verse 1 and 2 and verse 7. You've got all these powerful political leaders over here. They're, they don't have a clue that the Messiah is coming. You've got the religious leaders of Israel who don't have a clue that the Messiah is coming. And yet you've got this humble couple from Nazareth, obscure. And that's where God's working. So if people are focused on the power brokers of the day, the, the, the big religious leaders and the big political leaders, if they're looking to them to see God working and moving, they're going to miss what God is doing because God's over here in this little stable in a feeding trough. That's where God's at, not here. And so part of why we have to learn to live in a way where we anticipate that God's ways are not our ways is because that the Holy Spirit will enable us to make sure that we're not going to miss where God's at and what He's doing because we're trying to look at things from our human perspective rather than God's. And if we don't learn through the Word of God and the Spirit of God to look at things from God's perspective, we may, like the majority of people when Jesus was born, actually miss what God was doing. Because we're looking in the wrong direction. We're looking over here at the powerful, influential people of the world, and God's over here doing a great work. And we're missing it. Because our focus isn't where it should be. God's ways aren't our ways. God's power, the Bible says, is shown in weakness. And no more was that true than with the birth of Christ. God coming into the world as a little baby, placed in a feeding trough of animals, in a stable, no room. What a, what a humble way to start. No fanfare. No... Big prayed. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't born in Rome. Jesus, what, Jesus wasn't born in a, in a palace. Jesus was born in a stable. God's ways are not our ways. Then we come to the angelic announcement to the shepherds, which is also very interesting for a couple reasons. For God to reveal this wonderful event to these shepherds would have shocked most people, especially the religious people of Israel. Shepherds, by their very nature in handling sheep, were considered ceremonially unclean. So they were sort of left out of a lot of the, you know, things as far as the religious uh, ceremony of Israel. Because of just who they were. 
And yet again, we see a tie-in here to Jesus. Jesus is, calls himself the good shepherd who shepherds his sheep. I also believe that these sheep, being in the proximity that they were to Jerusalem, that these shepherds were probably watching sheep that in the springtime were going to be used as sacrifice. Which I think also just, wow, that, that's not just an accident. That's not just a coincidence here. These shepherds were watching the sacrificial sheep that were in the spring going to go to the temple for sacrifice. And so the Bible says in verse 8, Now there were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. The angel of the Lord appears to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. Just a side note, I I have to wonder with the angelic realm, if there wasn't this sort of like inside joke that like, you realize every time you go to earth, the first things you're going to have to say is don't be afraid. Because you ever know that every time an angel appears, it's like, don't be afraid. You know, that's just what they have to say, you know. Listen carefully. I am going to proclaim good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. First of all, notice there in the outline, there had to be a readiness to receive this illumination from God. God knew that even though maybe these shepherds, again, weren't considered very important, just like maybe Mary and Joseph wasn't considered very important, even though the religious people in Israel would have been looking to the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the, you know, the religious muckamucks to see what was going on. Here, God revealed this great event to these shepherds who, again, like a lot, were outcasts. One of the themes you'll see in the Gospel of Luke, why Luke mentions outcasts, why he mentions women and emphasizes them, why he mentions children more than any other gospel, is he wants us to know God is a God for all people. There is no such thing with God that there's people who are more valuable, more important to God than anyone else. Everyone, and that's exactly what the angel said. This Savior is going to be for all people because everyone on earth needs a savior. But the the thing that, that impressed me about these shepherds were obviously the way they were living their life and all they were doing, I say all they were, all they were doing was being faithful shepherds, guarding those sheep out there and tending them. But they were doing it in such a way that that prepared them for God to reveal more of his plan, more of his purpose, more of himself to them. You and I don't have to do anything spectacular to be involved with what God's doing. We just have to be faithful to what God has called us to and put ourselves in a place where our hearts and minds are are ready to receive what God wants to continue to give us. God, I believe, wants to give us more insight, more illumination, more wisdom in in our everyday lives. And if we're just living our life every day the way we should, then we are putting ourselves like the shepherds in a place where we are ready to receive it. See, not everybody in Israel was ready to receive this illumination and this revelation. And that's why God didn't go to them. He went to the shepherds. And isn't it sad? Going back to the religious leaders, 
that the religious leaders of Israel weren't the ones that got this message from the angel. It was these shepherds who were just out there, average, ordinary people, just like Joseph and Mary. But they're the ones that God was working in and working through, not the power brokers of society, if you will. And notice the clarity of God's revelation. Notice how clear it is. Verse 11, today, that's pretty specific. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. They would know exactly what that, that was Bethlehem, the city of David. Oh, he is also Christ the Lord. In other words, he's the Messiah. He's the one Israel's been waiting for all these years since the Old Testament scriptures predicted it. And this is going to be a sign, a marker, a token in order for you to distinguish exactly what baby is the Messiah. Because obviously there were probably other babies in Bethlehem. So the angel, for clarity, said, this is how you'll know the Messiah because it's going to be totally different than any other baby you're going to find when you start searching for a baby in Bethlehem. This baby is going to be wrapped in strips of cloth and he's going to be lying in a manger. There just aren't going to be too many babies lying in mangers in Bethlehem. There's going to be one. So you... What we see here is when we are willing to receive God's illumination, when, when we put ourselves in a place where God knows that, you know, we will follow what he says, he is very clear. There was nothing cloudy. There was nothing confusing about this revelation from the angel. It was as specific. It was as clear as possible. There was no way they were going to miss what God wanted them to, to get. And that's true for us. If you really want to know God's will, if you really want to know what God's heart and mind is on something, if that's your heart, then God will make it very clear. Even if, even if you miss it, God will make sure he brings it back around to the point where over and over again, it gets so obvious that this is what God wants me to do because it's coming from every angle. You and I have been in those situations where we were like, I don't know whether that's of God or not. And then God just starts flooding us with confirmation. We have a conversation with a friend and they bring it up out of the blue and we're like, okay, that was weird. And then we turn on maybe a Christian radio station. All of a sudden there's a song about it. And then, you know, we're, we're just flipping through the Bible and we come to a passage and we start reading, oh, and that says something about it. And, you know, that's the way God worked. Because if we really are interested in what God is doing, we can't miss it. He'll make it very, very clear. The other thing I want to point out, i got to get going, is God's revelation always demands a response. That's true in our lives as well. When God reveals something to us, when He illuminates us, whether it's in our study of the Word of God, through our prayer time, through our worship time, uh, whatever that is, God revealing more of who He is and what He's all about to us always demands a response. Even if the response is nothing, that's a response. And so you'll notice the response that the shepherds gave. Verse 15, when the angels left them and went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, and in the Greek, it was like they were so excited, they, they couldn't stop talking about it. They said, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, that the Lord has made known to us. Man, there was an excitement that God had revealed something to them, and they were excited about it. They couldn't keep it to themselves, and they wanted to go and follow it up. 
So notice, they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph. Then the Bible says in verse 17, when they saw him, they related, they made known what had been told about this child. That's a proper response. When God reveals things to us, we should get excited about it. We should follow it up. We should make sure that we go in the direction God has clearly shown us to go. And then whatever God's doing in our lives, if we're, exci- if we're excited about it, if we believe it, we should want to talk about it and share it with others. Obviously, the Bible says there were others who were astonished at it. Mary had a different response. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. But the shepherds returned glorifying and praising, singing to God for all they had heard and seen. Everything was just as they had been told. That's a proper response to God revealing himself to us. And the shepherds are a great model of what our response should be when God gives us greater insight into himself and into his word. Joseph and Mary, exemplary parents. Notice there's three things here, starting in verse 21. And what I want you to notice here in these last 15 minutes or 20 minutes we have together tonight is from verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, one thing is going to stand out as center to everything that happens from here on out. It's the temple. Don't miss that. From verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, the temple is going to be front and center of everything that's going on. I'm going to share more about that in just a moment. Why is Joseph and Mary exemplary parents? Because they follow what God said to do in the Old Testament down to the finest detail. They didn't just talk about their faith. They lived it out. They, they modeled what it meant to be a follower of Jehovah. We know that, first of all, because of Jesus' circumcision. Notice there in verse 21, at the end of eight days, which is exactly what the Old Testament said, he would be circumcised. And he was named Jesus. That's significant because the name Jesus means God saves. Jehovah is salvation. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Joseph and Mary did that. Then notice, Joseph and Mary then presented Jesus in the temple. Verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This means literally to place him at God's disposal. It was a way for parents to say, this child is a gift from God to me, and we're just simply giving him back to God. God, you do with him whatever you want. It's sort of the basis that we have for our child dedication today in church. It's why we encourage parents every once in a while to think about bringing your children and presenting them to the Lord. And then finally, we see Mary's purification. Again, just as it is written, notice, in the law of the Lord. Notice how many times this is brought up. Every firstborn male will be set apart to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is specified in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. We also know know from this sacrifice that Mary and Joseph brought that they were of very humble means. Because in the Old Testament, a couple was supposed to bring, if they could afford it, a lamb. 
The Bible then gave provision. If a couple could not afford a lamb to sacrifice, then they were to bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So we know then that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy by any standard of Jewish society at that time. But they did everything exactly the way the law of Moses said to do it. In fact, notice there in your outline, I also attach verse 39, which is sort of out of place, but I wanted to show you this here because over in verse 39, it says, so when Joseph and Mary had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, there's that phrase again, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. By the way, the word performed there means to complete in every detail. They weren't just partially obedient to what God said in the Old Testament. They were completely obedient to what God said. They were living out their faith. They were following what the law of the Lord said down to the last detail. Whether it was Jesus' circumcision, whether it was his presentation at the temple, whether it was Mary's purification and the sacrifice that was brought, everything was done exactly the way the Bible said to do it. Wow. Exemplary parents, just like the book of Deuteronomy said, this law shall not depart out of your heart, but shall be in your, your heart and in your mind. And then you shall teach it to your children. We can't pass along to our children what we really don't possess ourselves. And certainly we see here in Joseph and Mary, parents who were totally committed, totally absorbed to God and to his word and to do, to do things according to his word, to follow the principles of his word. And that's the way they lived their lives. Exemplary parents. Then next, beginning in verse 25, ready to see Jesus. We're introduced to two individuals here, Simeon and Anna, two elderly saints of God. And I want you to notice a couple things. We don't have time tonight to go into all this, but I want you to notice the witness, first of all, of Simeon. Notice down in verse 29, Simeon says, now, according to your word, sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace. In other words, I can die. And the reason, because he had been given insight from the Lord that he would not physically die until his eyeballs landed on the Messiah. Now that he's seen Jesus, he says, my eyes have now seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of, again, notice all peoples. Notice something very important, though, in verse 30. According to Simeon, to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. They are inseparable. Don't miss that. That is the witness of Simeon. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. Apart from really seeing Jesus for who he is, there can be no salvation. Then notice verse 33. The child's father and mother were amazed at what had been said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said now to his mother, Mary, isn't that interesting? Instead of saying what he's about to say to both parents, it's like he turns and just says it to Mary. And I think, again, there's an allusion here to the fact that Joseph evidently is going to die very soon and pass off the scene and not even be around when Jesus is crucified. Because notice, Simeon turns to Mary and says this, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel. He's a stone. 
He's a cornerstone. He's going to be a stepping stone for some who believe in him to God. But he's also going to be a stumbling stone that many stumble over because they can't get past who he is. So Simeon talks about that as far as the witness. Then he says he's also going to be a sign and be a sign that will be rejected. In other words, he's going to be refused. Notice also that Simeon here in his witness is saying Jesus Christ will divide people. Even in Israel, there will be division. There will be some who embrace Jesus and accept him as their Messiah. And there's going to be some who push him away and refuse him as their Messiah. Jesus Christ will divide people. In fact, then in verse 35, he says, Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He is, he is like the point of reference for anything and everything. What do we think about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? Because hearts really are uncovered, laid bare, and manifested when it comes to what they believe about Jesus. And that's exactly what Simeon is witnessing here. Then he again says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Going back to even at the beginning when we said being God's servant is not always comfortable or convenient, Simeon was witnessing the fact that one day Mary, the mother of Jesus, was going to have to watch her son not only be rejected, but be crucified. And so there was going to be more hardship ahead for Mary. So we see the witness of Simeon. Then we come over to the testimony of Anna. Again, why does Luke include her? I think because she was a woman. Because he didn't want to just say, hey, this is just a... No, this woman has as much insight too and she has as much access and she recognizes what God is doing as much as the man does. Because in verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. By the way, a prophetess just means one who declares or interprets what God has revealed. Notice, she was very old, having been married to her husband for only seven years until he died, and then she lived the rest of her life as a widow up until, I believe, the age of 84. Notice, she never left the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and at that moment, verse 38, she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Because guess what? She recognized that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. One of the things Luke is trying to share with us here about Simeon and Anna is this. When we are walking with God, and when we're living the way God wants us to, we will recognize what God is doing. We will understand what God is doing. We will be able to say, this is of God. And that's exactly what Simeon and Anna did. They recognized this was of God. And there's obviously a reason for that. If you go back and look at Simeon in verse 25, he was a righteous man. The, the word means spiritually observant. He was devout, meaning he acted in, a, in, a, in care and reverence with spiritual things. He was looking for the restoration of it. He expected God to fulfill his promises. And the same thing is true with Anna. Notice, she never left the temple in verse 37 for how many years? She worshiped day and night. Fast. 
Many people would look at Anna, who was 84 years old, and say, you wasted your life. Because they would interview her from an earthly perspective, go, hey, what did you do with your life? Well, you know, I got married pretty young. I was a young teenage girl, like many girls in Israel. And, and then uh, seven years after I married my husband, he died. And ever since then, I've just been at the temple every day. And I just worship God and I just fast and I pray. That's it? That, that's your life? And, and people from an earthly, but what a waste. But one of the things Luke is teaching us here, and God wants us to know is, when we're devoted to God, <laughs> there's no waste at all. This woman, like Simeon, was devoted to God. And that actually, that actually gives us the best life. There could be no better life. Anna, if you, when we get to heaven, when we get to talk to Anna, she'd probably say, I had a wonderful life. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do much. I just went to the temple every day and I just worshiped God and prayed and fasted. But I had a great life. Because I was devoted to God and God filled me up every day. I didn't need all the other stuff. Which leads me to the last point there in the outline under number four. The keys to not miss what God is doing in our lives. A couple things. One, notice, it's spiritual devotion. Why did Simeon and Anna get to see the Messiah? Why were they given this privilege by God? Because they were spiritually observant. They were dedicated. They were devoted. They were committed. They were looking for God to do something. How many of us live our lives every day and even coming on Tuesdays and Sundays to church anticipating and looking for God to do something in our lives? If we live that way, then we will experience God in a whole different way. Which leads me to this point. Why were they able to experience seeing the Messiah? Because they were where they should be. Notice, everything revolves around the temple, the house of God, the place where God is worshipped by His people. Now, I know some of you are going to think that I'm stretching this too far because I'm a pastor of a local church. And if so, obviously, that's, that's your right. That's your opinion. But I would certainly like to have a deeper conversation because I think biblically that this is pretty clear here. What do I mean? Well, I think too many Christians today take not being in church and missing church and not being faithful and consistent as not a big deal. Because to them, maybe they've never been taught that, do you realize that every time we come together, if we're not there, we're going to miss something that God is doing? Now look, I, I'm not saying that we as Christians can't take a Sunday off every once in a while and go on vacation. That's not what I'm saying. But too often in our culture today, church is like the first thing that people like in their... If, if things start to get tight, ow, I'll blow church off. And I wonder, do we really understand that just like with Simeon and Anna, if they wouldn't have been at the temple, they would have missed Jesus they would have missed what God was doing because they weren't 
at the house of God. And I wonder sometimes, do we really believe that when we go to church, that we are receiving from God and going to get something? And if we're not there, we're going to miss something? And I guess I would say this, if you're in a church where you don't think that if you uh, go or not go, that you're not really missing anything, then I'd have to say, are you really going to the right church? Because I don't know about you, but every time I come to church with you all, God does something in my life. I never leave on a Sunday or Tuesday and walk away going, well, God never did anything for me that day. I didn't experience God in any way that, that day. No. Every time I come to be with you, God's people, and meet corporately, God does something in my life. And if I'm not here, I feel like I'm missing what God is doing. And so I wonder if maybe we need to change the perspective that Christians have about church. And maybe expecting God to do something when we show up. Give me five minutes, I'll wrap this up. Because i got to get to this. This is a really cool little story. The disappearance of Jesus. Jesus disappeared. It's the only story in the Bible that shows us Jesus in his young adult years, if you will. His teenage years. Not quite. He's not quite 13. But other than baby and then obviously ministry, this is the only slice we see. And I think it's for good reason. I think you'll find out why tonight. First of all, notice there in the outline, the principle of growth means change. Because we learn in verse 40 that when they went back to Nazareth, the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. When you and I are growing, change is going to happen. That's true physically, that's true emotionally, that's true spiritually. And the reason I point that out is because hopefully every one of us desires to grow. But I hope we all remember that as I'm growing, then things are going to change. And I realize part of the rub is we as human beings want things to always stay the same. Yet that's counterintuitive to our spiritual growth. Because if we truly want to grow, that means then we are welcoming and open and embracing change all the time. Because if I'm growing, there's going to always be change taking place in and around my life. And that was even true with Jesus and his parents, because we're going to see in this passage, Jesus's relationship with his parents and his parents' relationship with him had to go through a change. It wasn't always going to be what it was when he was a young child. So you notice when he was 12 years old, Verse 42, they went up according to the custom. There again, they're following the custom of the law. And when the feast was over, as they were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. They, they traveled in a large caravan. And because they assumed that he was in their, uh, with their group of travelers somewhere, they went a whole day's journey outside of Jerusalem until they realized he wasn't there. They began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. They did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem and they're looking for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking their questions. And I know, especially you moms out there going, if that was my son, did that to me? We'll get to that. All who heard Jesus, verse 47, were astonished at his understanding. See how many times Luke uses the word marvel or astonished or amazed. When God is at work, 
Unbelievable things are happening. And when his parents saw him, they were overwhelmed. Literally in the Greek, they were stricken with shock. Like, oh. And his mother said to him, you moms can appreciate this. Child, why have you treated us like this? Why did you make us do this? Look, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. As my mom used to say, we've been worried sick about you. (laughs) But notice, he replied, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And I put there the matter of priority. Because what now is changing is this. Even though Mary and Joseph had some concept, obviously when even Jesus was first born, that he was the Messiah, because the angels told them about that. Virgin born, power of the Holy Spirit. They still didn't understand all the Old Testament scriptures and how the Old Testament scriptures tied in to really who Jesus really was. And so they were having to come to grips with the fact that the priority of Jesus was not his earthly family. The priority of Jesus was his relationship with his heavenly father and spiritual priorities. There was, there was a priority shift going on here. And they had to come to grips with that. There was also a matter of authority. They had to realize that in this particular case, and your kids can't use this, because they're not God. But in this particular case, they were really not the authority in Jesus' life. Now, yeah, in our lives today with human children, God places parents as the authority. But Mary and Joseph had to come to grips with Jesus has different priorities because he is the Son of God and we are not his authority. In fact, the words, why were you looking for me, literally in the Greek means, why were you demanding something of me? You shouldn't be demanding of me. I'm the one that's going to be demanding of you. I'm God. Didn't you know that I must, a necessity, be about my father's, in my father's house? Which again, where was Jesus? In his father's house. That's where they found him. Yet his parents did not understand. They could not wrap their minds around the remark he made to them. But the Bible says he went down with them, came to Nazareth, was obedient to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. When I read and studied Luke chapter 2, The thing that primarily stood out to me was this. Luke is recording for us all these wonderful people that were privileged to be a part of what God was doing. And God made it known to them. But they weren't the power brokers of the world. They weren't the political leaders. They weren't the spiritual leaders. They were just God-fearing, devoted servants of His. And yet they had more insight into what God was doing than anybody else. And the same thing is true today. If you and I just dedicate ourselves to God and do His Word, we can have more insight into things 
than a lot of the leaders, spiritual, political, or otherwise, have. And we don't, I think, after Luke chapter 2, want to ever miss what God is doing. And I think more than anything, Luke chapter 2, overarching, gives us principle after principle of how we can get in on what God is doing and not miss it. Look at Anna. Look at Simeon. Look at Mary and Joseph. Look at all the people. Look at the shepherds. Look at all the people that had the wonderful uh, you know, uh, privilege of being involved in this great thing that God was doing. But it was because they were dedicated. It was because they were where they were supposed to be. It was because they had their priorities straight. And again, the same thing is true with us. If we want to see God work and, and do and be in on more of what He's doing, all we have to do is say, God, my life is in Your hands. Let it be according to Your Word. Let's not miss what God wants to do in your life and in the life of this church. Let's pray. God, thank You for this wonderful story of the birth of Christ and all the surrounding events. Thank You, God for reminding us about the priorities that we should have and, and the commitment that we should have. These dear people who followed you faithfully and were expecting you to do great things saw you fulfill your promises. And God, you've made promises to us. And you've said things in your word that if we will just be faithful, we will see you do great things. And so, God, I pray that we are building a group of people here who are truly looking, expecting, anticipating you to show up every time, to show up every day in our lives, to, to see, God, your hand involved in what we're doing. And, and Lord, to be thrilled about it, to, to know that the God of the universe is including us in his great plan of redemption for this world. And so, God, excite us about that. Help us to be like the shepherds who properly respond when you let us in on what you're doing. And just, Lord, may we meditate on this chapter in the days and weeks to come. Just so, Lord, we can continue to draw out from it principles that can truly change our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks.